Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, we're looking at the ideological forefathers of Israel's settler movement. It's election day in Israel, and while the outcome of that election seems to be pretty much a foregone conclusion, it has been an interesting campaign. That's due to the unexpected rise of a rookie politician named Naftali Bennett. Bennett espouses a kind of religious Zionism that has long been popular among people in the settler movement, but what's interesting is that Bennett has somehow found a way to make that ideology attractive to the mainstream, including even secular Israelis. To understand this movement, we're looking at its roots, which can be found in the thinking of two influential rabbis, a father and son. Our guest is rabbi and scholar Shai Held. He's talking with Tablet's Leah Leibowitz about Rav Kook Jr. and Sr., and about the surprising growth of the settler movement, and about religion and politics in Israel more generally. Give a listen, it's really a fascinating discussion. On the eve of Passover in 1967, an old rabbi gave a sermon in Jerusalem. He wasn't in a festive mood. Where is our Hebron, he cried out. Are we forgetting it? And where is our Nablus? Are we forgetting it? And where is our Jericho? Are we forgetting it? And where is our east side of the Jordan? Where is every lump and chunk, every bit and piece of the four cubits of God's land? Is it up to us to give up any millimeter of it? God forbid. His name was Tzviuda Kuk and his words would launch the political movement that, more than any other, would shape Israeli thought, theology, and politics. Two months after his speech, the Six-Day War put Israel in control of the West Bank, and Rabbi Cook's disciples began occupying its hills and valleys, building Jewish settlements in the middle of Arab populations. Today, we spend much time arguing about these settlements politically, but little time understanding the religious underpinnings that led to their creation, and the man responsible for their existence— with me to discuss Rabbi Cook and his ideas is Rabbi Shai Held, the co-founder and dean of the egalitarian education institution, Machon Hadar in New York. Rabbi Held, such a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Uh, before we get to Rabbi Cook, tell us a little bit about the state of Judaism in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, as you see it. Not to be too shallow, but it seems like the emancipation, which made European Jews equal rights citizens, and Zionism, which propelled many of them back to Palestine, created a very chaotic situation, right? I mean... The rabbis at the time, most of them at least, believed that Jews weren't allowed to return to Zion until the Messiah comes. So, so set the scene for us. I think probably the best way to understand specifically the question of rabbis and Zionism is to keep in mind that although today we tend to see the sort of vanguard, for good or for bad, of Zionist settlement as uh, taken up by religious people, the fact is an overwhelming majority of Orthodox rabbis in Europe were opposed to the Zionist movement strongly, and usually for one of two reasons. Either A, they felt that it was forbidden for religious Jews to cooperate with a movement that was run by, led by in every way, secular Jews, or they believed, the second is the more radical position, that it wouldn't matter whether every Zionist leader understood him or herself as religious. The bottom line is that Jews are forbidden from taking initiative in bringing themselves back to Zion. Because that, that is the Messiah's job. Because according to a famous passage in the Talmud, that is one of the vows that the Jewish people took, that they would not rush the end, that they would wait for God to deliver them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet nearly alone among serious rabbinic figures, uh, one rabbi believed that 
the Zionists were truly the servants of God's hidden plan. Uh, Avraham Yitzchak Kuk, uh, probably the most influential rabbi, I think, of, of the modern era, the father of the man I just quoted in my introduction. Tell us a little bit about Rabbi Kuk Sr. Who was he? What did he believe? What, what was his influence? Rabbi Kuk Sr. was, in many ways, started out as a traditional and somewhat conventional Eastern European rabbi. And then he got the Zionist bug. And over time, the idea of the return of the Jewish people to their land became really the center of his spiritual and theological universe. And because he was such a colossus on many levels, intellectually, spiritually, people say charismatically, he ended up having an enormous degree of influence um, over what religious Zionism became. It's actually important to, to note here, though, that the founding figures of religious Zionism as a movement were largely not messianists, or if they were messianists, they were fairly tame about it. So that, for example, Isaac Jacob Rhinus, Rabbi Isaac Jacob Rhinus, the founder of Mizrahi, the founder of religious Zionism as a political faction in the Zionist world, was very clear in many of his writings, not in all, but in many of his writings, that Zionism had nothing at all to do with messianism. Zionism, in his mind, was about fulfilling the obligation that Jews have always had to save lives when they could. Mm. And because Jewish lives in Eastern Europe were endangered, there was an obligation to return to Zion. But Rabbi Cook didn't see it that way. Rabbi Cook thought that the notion that you could separate Zionism from religion in a way that Rhinus entertained was what he called toeva, an abomination. That Zionism only made sense and only actually had a raison d'etre if it was part and parcel of a larger commitment to Torah and to the God of Israel. So uh, just to help me kind of posit it in, in the large uh, theological you know, framework of, of Judaism, this seems to me to be, to be kind of quite a departure, right? Uh, land or, or the idea of, of, of returning to it didn't really play that much a, a greater part in Jewish theology until that point. Am I correct? What, what happened all of a sudden? Well, I would say that land played a huge role in the mythic imagination of the Jews. Sure. That is, in, in, the, in, in the daily prayer to return to Zion, which was often, although not always, often sort of imagined that something that would happen down the road led by God. What happened was nationalism, right? I think what happened first and foremost was not primarily an internal Jewish development. It was what Jews in Europe observed going on about them. You find early Zionist writers talking about how Every tiny little nation in the world now is itching for their own national self-determination. And look at us. We're just passive and pathetic. So what happened is largely, I think, a function of the emergence of nationalism, coupled with the growing realization, this is true about Zionism writ large, that Europe was never going to be a hospitable place for Jews. How little do they know? This is in the 1880s, not the 1930s. Already the sense that the promises of emancipation have turned out to be false, dangerous, and so Jews had to take responsibility for themselves. And so Rabbi Cook uh, sort of harnesses this uh, in, into the theological stream, sort of b- builds an idea around it. And, and how is he received by, by the Zionists? Well, it's an interesting question, and there's more research to be done about the extent to which Rabbi Cook Sr., really was Rabbi Cook Sr. until later on. What I mean by that is, how influential was he in his own time really is, I think, something of an open question. Um, I think something that's, that's kind of an important footnote to what we were just discussing is that 
If you have a choice between moving to a faraway place that is extremely dangerous, where you're risking life and limb, you're risking getting malaria, and you can go either because, well, this has nothing to do with the coming of the Messiah, but there is an obligation to save lives, so I'll risk my life to save a life. Or you can participate in nothing less than the cosmos unfolding Mm -hmm towards their preconceived divine plan so that the entire universe returns to its source and everything is brought to wholeness, it's likely that the latter narrative is what's going to compel and inspire you. That's one of the reasons why cookism on some level wins and Rhinusism, to coin a term, doesn't win. Because on some level, the Rhinus narrative is much more quotidian, pedestrian. Mm. It's about, okay, we'll save lives. Whereas in Cook's narrative, Zionism is nothing less than the center of a massive cosmic process of healing and repair. And he himself practices what he preaches, right? He, he moves to Jerusalem eventually? Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he starts out as a chief rabbi in, in Tel Aviv Jaffa in the settlements there and eventually is the chief rabbi, um, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the land of Israel. And he has a son, the man I quoted earlier on, uh, Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, uh, who was a different story. Uh, I think it's not too uncharitable to say that he wasn't uh, quite the the thinker his father was, and his ideas certainly were very different. Could you give us a sort of, I know this may be an unfair question, but a sort of brief primer into the thoughts and the differences uh, between these two influential men? Sure. It's actually um, noteworthy that you can learn a lot about someone's politics in Israel based on just how large the chasm they imagine is between the father and the son, meaning that those who see themselves as Tzvi Yehuda Kuk's disciples will insist that Tzvi Yehuda Kuk was merely translating his father's ideas into a somewhat more um, accessible idiom, whereas those who think that Tzvi Yehuda Kuk represented a radical departure from his father will insist that the chasm between them is quite vast. Um, I think it is useful to think of Tzvi Yehuda Kuk as partially engaged in a project of concretizing his father's ideas so that, for example... Whereas the father talked about the ways in which this sort of cosmic Kabbalistic entity called Knesset Israel, the Jewish people, the congregation of Israel, was holy and on some level that it had a nature that could not be sullied, a kind of pure essence. For Tzvi Yehuda, those same ideas became attached to a very concrete entity, the state of Israel. So there's a kind of literally concretization of taking ideas that were metaphysical in the father And making them, they remain metaphysical, but they also get attached to concrete political entities, which is, Tzvi Yehuda's students would say, the power of what he did, and his critics would say, the absolute danger of what he did. And it's fair to say that this goes to the idea of land as well, right? For for Cook Sr., it was, as you said, a sort of metaphysical notion. uh, And and for Cook Jr., it was the the raison d'etre of the theology. Is that a fair assessment? It is, although I wouldn't want to understate the extent to which land was extremely important for the father as well. Maybe a useful way of seeing this is that there is a divide in the history of Jewish thought. Roughly speaking, you can say that there's two ways to think about the land of Israel in the history of Jewish thought. One is that holy as it may be, it is largely holy for instrumental reasons. It is holy for what it makes possible. It makes possible the fulfillment of mitzvot, including many commandments that apply only in the land of Israel. Maimonides is probably your best um, example of an instrumentalist view of the holiness of the land of Israel, but in a different way, 
Rabbi Reines holds the same view. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik holds a similar view. On the other side, there's a view that is what we might call the ontological view of the land, the metaphysical view of the land that says that this land is in itself metaphysically unique. It is in its essence different from any other piece of earth. Cook the father and Cook the son are very much of that latter school. They're both of that latter school. By the way, that's paralleled to how people in the history of Jewish thought have seen the nature of the people of Israel, where someone like Maimonides would say the meaning of the people of Israel is that they are a people that has been given a distinct religious and philosophical project. But there's nothing ontologically unique about Jews, whereas in different iterations, thinkers like Yehuda Halevi, much of Kabbalah, all of Kabbalah, would say, no, the Jewish people are ontologically unique. There is something other about they them. They inherited the divine spark from Adam onwards, and therefore they are holy. Right, there's, a, there's a wonderful phrase um, that comes from a contemporary scholar of Jewish philosophy, Daniel Lasker, who says that the difference between Maimonides and Yehuda Halevi is that for Maimonides, the difference between Jews and Gentiles is always only software. It's what you put in the system. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Halevi, it's hardware. There's something about who they are that is ontologically distinct. They have something in them that is unlike anybody else. And that was that was the camp both the cooks belonged to. Yeah. And on some level, one of the core differences between Rav Cook the father and Rav Cook the son is that for the father, his notion is that the this sort of inner piece of holiness of the Jewish people, Skulat Yisrael, would, he thought, serve as a guarantee that the Jewish people would not succumb to the worst temptations of nationalism. For the son, what it meant effectively was that whatever they did was inherently moral. Mm -hmm. It was an absolute guarantee, which I've written actually turned into a kind of moral blank check. Because of this ontological uniqueness of Israel, it on some level was incapable of doing anything. Whatever you do is more by definition. That is what I would say a deeply anti-prophetic theology. Um, Now, the Holocaust uh, played a a significant part in in Cook Jr.'s thought. He he was, uh, I think it's not unfair to say that he stopped just short of of seeing it as as some sort of divine punishment for Jews having abandoned the promised land. Can you talk a little bit about how he saw that cataclysmic event and its implications theologically? Yeah, I think he would have been very insistent that he didn't see it as a punishment. The metaphor, if I recall, that he uses is a divine surgery where God is trying to sort of fix the current situation in the world such that the Jewish people are able to return to their land. I'm not sure that makes it, that's so much more palatable, but I think he would have been careful not to say it was a punishment. That said, You know, my own sense of this is that one of the central consequences of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, for Tzvi Yehuda Kuk was that although his father believed in the sort of ontological difference between Jews and Gentiles, he was what I would call a harmonist. He really believed that the return of the Jewish people to their land was good for the whole world and would be accomplished, could only be accomplished, with the cooperation and approval of the whole world. Tzvi Yehuda really moved 180 degrees away from that and talked very frequently, for example, to use a phrase in Hebrew for a second, how the return to Zion would take place right? no matter what they said, in spite of what the rest of the world said. Any harmonism 
in his father's thought really disappears from the son. You have a lot of anger, how, how combativeness. How do you explain that? Is that just a result of growing up with, with, with the state of Israel uh, coming into formation and, and seeing its you know, miraculous military achievements? How does that happen? Is it a difference of temperament? I think it, it is, first and foremost, a difference in temperament. Um, you know, one of Tzvi Yehuda's students at his eulogy, if I'm not mistaken, says about him, and he means this as a compliment, the father was the soul of existence, but the son was the soul of the nation. And the irony is that although that may have been intended as a compliment, it also reveals something about the rabid particularity mm-hmm. um, of the son. The son was not particularly drawn to the father's sort of almost dreamy universalism. That was just simply not where he was drawn. And I think to be generous and fair, someone living after the cataclysm of the Holocaust, it's not, not, it's not ununderstandable why someone might feel like, you know what, I'm not that interested in what the Gentiles have to say. This is our story. And, and this is our land. And if we have uh, the, the, the might and the capacity, we should reclaim our, our biblical heritage. Yes. And there, in asking that question, you touch on another very crucial distinction. I would say that in many ways, this is the crucial distinction between the father and the son. According to Abraham Isaac Cook, the Jewish people are forbidden from engaging in militarism, in violence, He makes this extremely interesting argument that although exile is forced upon the Jewish people, there is a kind of internal assent to it because the Jewish people don't want to have power during a time that requires what he calls risha uvarbariyut, evil and barbarism. Mm -hmm. And the tragedy is that he legitimates or argues for Zionism by saying, now that we're living in a messianic time, the cosmos is being healed, and it will be possible for the Jewish people to return to their land with no one getting hurt. Those are words that are extremely painful and poignant to read from basically a century, to read a century later. Um, so there's a kind of almost pacifistic quality to the father's thought. The son, over the course of his career, moves to the very opposite extreme and becomes explicitly militaristic in his thinking, such that, for example, Military victories, Israeli military victories should be understood as Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. And conversely, military defeats, Jewish powerlessness is the primary meaning of Chilul Hashem, of desecration of God's name. A category that had often been used for behaving unethically in a way that reflected badly on God now comes to mean something very different, which is Jewish powerlessness is what it means to desecrate God's name. And Tzvi Yehuda allows himself some formulations that I think it's fair to say his father would have been actually both shocked, astounded, and maybe even repulsed by. For example, the assertion that the multiplication of weapons in Israel brings the Shekhinah, the divine presence, back into the land. His father would have found that completely unimaginable. And yet many others found that very appealing. Right? He, he becomes uh, both this, this great rabbi and, and his ideas uh, gain great prominence. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that happens. You know, it's, it's actually a very important and interesting question. I think one of the great um, scholarly needs for understanding the history of Zionism in general and religious Zionism in particular is a really good A – full-length biography of Tzvi Yehuda Kuk and B, a kind of reception history of Tzvi Yehuda Kuk. That is, what was made of him um, over the course of the end of his life and, and after his death. 
it's it's useful to know that for much of his life, Tzvi Yehuda Kook was a fairly forgotten, relatively insignificant figure who, according to many scholars, was largely discovered by and on some level even created by his students. Hmm. He was looking for students. They were looking for a mentor. And they found one in this elderly man he had who the had the last name, name Cook, who was in charge of Merkaz Harav Yeshiva, which was the institution that his father had founded, although it was fairly run down by that time. So in a way, he was a figure looking for a group of disciples, maybe looking for approbation. They were looking for a figure they could kind of construct as their hero. I mean, in many ways, one of the strange things about reading Tzvi Yehuda Kook's students is that many of them come across, anyway, as far more sophisticated readers of texts than he himself. It's a very odd thing. And I've come to the conclusion, in many ways, this is a question less for intellectual historians than for social scientists, about what it means for a group of students whose own writings are often so much more impressive than the master, having an almost worshipful relationship with the master. There's something very interesting there to understand. And yet together, uh, uh, that's fascinating, together they created uh, this theology which which hit uh, Israel and and the Jewish world uh, at just the right time, right? The the quote that I gave was, of course, uh, Passover of 67. It was two months before the the Six-Day War, and when, when Israel gained control of, of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, uh, they they set to put the theology in, in, into practice, uh, didn't they? Yes. And an important piece of context for that is that after that victory in 67, which an enormous number is, of Israelis, including Israelis who had until that moment self-identified as secular, so many of those people experienced that victory as miraculous and as even suggestive of the supernatural in a way they couldn't explain. And so you have this brief period in Israeli life where lots of people, not just explicitly religious people, start using messianic language. One of the tragic ironies of Tzvi Yehuda and his circle is that they are incredibly energized by that fact, so energized that they fail to notice that that among the larger Israeli population dissipates within a year or so. They actually believe as they're starting out that large swaths of the Israeli population will go along with it, that there is a massive process of tshuva, of repentance underway. And it, that it, fails to sustain itself. Translated into politics, Rabbi Cook Jr.'s obsession with the land soon served as the sort of you know, theological engine of the settlement movement. How did it turn from a religious idea to caravans on the ground? One of the things that I think is important for understanding the unfolding of religious Zionist history, is that religious Zionists on some level were always battling with two forms of insecurity. On the one hand, they felt less religiously authentic than the ultra-Orthodox, and they felt less politically empowered than the labor Zionist mainstream. And on some level, you can understand part of what happened as an attempt to be better at both than either of those two schools. In other words, they wanted to out-pious the pious ultra-Orthodox and out-Zionist the labor Zionists. They were going to be the ones who refused to surrender the real Zionist dream. They were the ones who were willing to, as it were, drain the swamps. So on some level, I would never want to reduce this to a psychological explanation, but I think it is part of what goes on here is 
a, a, a real hunger for a sense of their own authenticity, for not being marginal, not being seen as marginal anymore by the mainstream Zionist world, which they always had been. Now they were not marginal. They were the very vanguard. Also, it, it's maybe useful to point out that one of the consequences of having a metaphysical view of the land, the land is one metaphysical whole, that enables Tzviyuhu to Cook to argue that to carve up that land is to do violence to a metaphysical reality. So the notion of land for peace for him is not a political mistake. It's a metaphysical travesty. It's an assault on the way God has structured the world. Now, we all know, for good and for bad, probably mainly for bad, but we could think about that, that when you're able to give your politics, and I don't mean this cynically, but when your politics has a metaphysical overlay, your positions can be very passionately and very unshakably held. Now, what, there's another paradox here, which is that once Tzvi Huda Cook realizes that successive Israeli governments, including Israeli governments led by Likud, are willing to contemplate giving up parts of the biblical land of Israel, he gets into this extremely difficult place where on the one hand he is celebrating, valorizing the divine state, as he calls it, right? This, this land, this state that is intrinsically holy, and on the other hand, delegitimizing it and questioning whether it has the right to make its own political decisions. Because after all, a metaphysical entity should make its decisions based on metaphysical rules, not political ones. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, one of the really important consequences of Tzvi Cook's thought is it leaves very unclear what role there should be for realpolitik. To what extent does reality dictate our political decisions? And to what extent do we assume that, wait, God is in charge here, not earthly politics. And then you're again on very treacherous ground because you have a politics that, although it's being played out in caravans, is actually being played out in the cosmos as you imagine it. But let me ask you a question. You look at the history of the settlements uh, and you see government after government uh, continuing to support it. And despite the fact that that most Israelis, according to most surveys, do not, uh, they're growing stronger and stronger. Now, my question here is not political. There are obviously a host of political explanations for, for this phenomenon. But my question is, do you believe that maybe uh, the 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 kooks, uh, the kook and his disciples might have might have been right after all. Maybe they came up with a theological uh, answer that was so, or or, or reasoning that was so uh, convincing, or so compelling uh, that it's just too hard to refuse. I think if that's true, it's probably not the primary or conscious narrative that's taking place among a lot of those secular leaders. I suspect that it's something slightly more subtle than that, which is in a time when people want to value those who are courageous, who are willing to put their lives where their mouths are, those who are willing to be the continuators of a vanguard whose time has passed, that was what Tzvi Cook and his circle fulfilled. They were the last true believers in the Zionist project, the way many people imagine them. There's obviously a very profound irony that over the course, the trajectory over 45 years is that they went from being seen as these courageous, heroic, almost visionary leaders willing to really kind of play out the Zionist project to being seen as by many on the, let's say, the intellectual elites in Israel, 
the very biggest danger to the, to the sustainability of that Zionist project. There's, there's an amazing journey in terms of the perception of those people among Israeli elites from being people to be fundamentally ad- admired to in certain populations, you know, let's say the Haaretz editorial board, people to be reviled. But an amazing among, journey. But among among Jews, uh, let's say uh, worldwide, especially here in the United States, uh, they're not perhaps so categorically reviled. I would say that maybe even some of the answers or, or the ideas that they express are still very much uh, in vogue. Is this, uh, would you say that that is correct? I think there are large segments in particular of the American modern Orthodox community that has profound sympathy for the Cook Circle and the Settlement Project. How deep that runs and how theological that is, as opposed to a more general white rightward political shift, I think is very hard to tell. I don't really know that we have the data on a social science level to know exactly what the right-wing politics around Israel in modern orthodoxy is really about. But I think it is true that there is a lot of support. I mean, one of the ironies, I suspect, is that so much attention has been paid to the way left-wing groups in Israel receive money from North America, and very little attention is paid to the ways in which all kinds of right-wing groups in Israel are funded by contemporary North American Jews. Let me do the uh, the uncharitable thing uh, and, and read your words back to you. You wrote uh, in Haaretz uh, last year, uh, you argued for a Judaism that incorporates humanistic values, and you quoted uh, Abraham Yitzchak Cook, Cook Sr., um, and, and I'd like to read what you wrote. It is forbidden for the fear of heaven. You're quoting uh, Senior Cook here. It is forbidden for the fear of heaven to push aside the human being's natural morality, for then it would no longer be pure fear of heaven. So is this solution for us, if we're looking for a counter-theology, uh, is the solution for us or solution to Israel's political problems uh, to move the people from believing in Cook Jr. to believing in Cook Sr.? The answer to that, I believe, is yes, but. Yes, in terms of an approach to violence and militarism, Cook Sr. represents an incredibly powerful counterweight to Cook Jr. But Cook Sr. was an incredibly complicated figure himself. There are very few Jews I can think of about whom Whitman's statement about I contain multitudes are more true than Cook the father. So I would say that a contemporary religious Zionist theology would also need to jettison the father's Kabbalistically overlaid notions about the ontological mm-hmm. superiority of the Jews. That is very dangerous, no matter how pacifistic, anti-militaristic, opposing of violence you are, right? Those are very dangerous ideas. In that sense, I think a, a plausible religious Zionism needs to embrace a Maimonidean perspective about the difference between Jews and Gentiles is software, not hardware. It is true that those lines represent an enormously powerful critique of a lot of what happens in the name of organized religion all over the world. I've often said that if I could teach one passage in Jewish thought to religious leaders around the world, it would be those lines from Cook Sr., which is basically about saying, if you find that being religious gives you license to behave in ways you would otherwise know are immoral, it is not true religion. It is simply a false idol. What religion does, among other things, it's not the only thing religion does, but one of the main things religion does is goad you to be more moral, more compassionate, more caring. If it does the opposite, then it's an idol and it's not God. So 
let me ask you this. What happened to us? It seemed like we were capable not so long ago about about uh, of having these uh, raging discussions that were theological at heart and and that that posed various alternatives various ideas various approaches uh, and here we are being uh, being kind of consumed uh, by by or at least in you know, the state of Israel, uh, by by this one theology, which you say to yourself may not even be so much of a theology, may just be kind of kind of like a political thrust. H- how do we engage? Uh, and this goes for people who are religious as well as people who are not religious. Back in this theological discussion and and reclaim uh, what Zionism and what Judaism mean to us. This is an easy question, Sue. You <laughs> well, I would say for starters that it's extremely important to have a conversation on a regular basis about what God it is that you're worshiping. Because on some level, Jews have a choice between worshiping the God of the Bible, who is the God of all creation, who cares about all creation, human and natural, or worshiping a God who in effect becomes a big Jew. And... Sometimes when you read some of Tzvi Yehuda's followers, you fear that your God, the God has become as hyper-particularistic as they have. And there's something extremely dangerous there, and that's why that discussion um, needs to keep emerging and re-emerging. But hold on. Wouldn't that vision always win? Isn't that vision always the more palpable, the more appealing, the more dramatic? It may be appealing. It may be dramatic. I would also argue that it's a dramatic falsification of the heart of let's let's settle for this alone for now of biblical Judaism. Maybe another way of saying this is, you know, what is the relationship between the first part of the book of Genesis, which is about humanity, and then what begins in Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham? Is the point of that that all of creation is really just for the sake of Israel's covenant? Or is the point of that that Israel's covenant is situated in the context of divine care and concern for all of creation? That's a very important and basic question. I'm fairly confident I know how Tzvi Yehuda Cook would answer that. But to me, that's a really fundamental question. Maybe another way of saying this is just to sort of argue the universalist piece for a second. Many cultures would begin their their foundational story by talking about how they came into the world. Judaism does not actually begin that way. Judaism makes a decision to begin with a story about the emergence of the human and not with the emergence of the Jewish. The land of Israel and the people of Israel are not primordial in the book of Genesis. That is extremely significant. Now, you can nuance what I just said by saying many people claim to be universalists, but what they mean by that is, I'll look out for my own interests. I'll do what I think is important for us to do. And whatever I do for myself will have good reverberations on the rest of the world. I imagine Svi Yehuda Cook would have said, I am a universalist because I know that it's good for the cosmos, for the Jewish people to take possession of every last millimeter of the land Mm. of Israel. So universalism has to also include actually listening to and seeing other people. So if you were present uh, to to ask you to play a completely unfair game of uh, hypotheticals, if you were present at that 1967 speech, you're there listening to Tzvi Yehuda Cook saying, you know, where's our Hebron? Where's our Jericho? Have we forgotten it? Uh, what, what might a response be? You know, it's interesting. I, If I imagine myself in those days, 
I'm not sure I would have had the prescience to understand where that would all lead. On some level, if I could place myself somewhere, it would be by the early 70s when the direction that Tzvi Yehuda Cook and his students were going was clear and to say, do you understand where this could all lead? But to be fair, there were many voices in the religious Zionist world who said those very things and they lost. So Pinchas Rosenblit, for example, a um, prominent Orthodox member of Knesset, writes a, uh, an essay, I believe, in Haaretz called Habulmus Hamishichi, the Messianic Craze, in which he basically says, guys, this is nuts. You let this out of the bag and we can't put the genie back in the bottle. I'm throwing metaphors around here. But <laughs> we have to be extremely careful about this kind of language. And people like Moshe Una, about whom I wrote that piece in Haaretz, who basically say, in the end, our moral fiber is the fundamental definition of who we are. And there's a lot of danger. Probably most famously, Yeshayahu Leibovitz, who was extremely inflammatory and often, oftentimes in the way he spoke, said many of these things very explicitly, which is, this is really dangerous stuff. This is dynamite that you're playing with. The combination of messianism, a sense of the ontological difference and superiority of the Jews, a sense of the ontological uniqueness of the land of Israel, the increasing embrace of militarism, all of this combined is like a powder keg. Are you, are you hopeful that we will find our way away from that towards something else? I think a very interesting question is what is going to happen to many of the younger generation of right-wing religious Zionists after presumably some kind of Palestinian state is created on land that is traditionally considered holy by the Jewish people. Will those people be even more radicalized? Will they become secular because their dreams have been shattered? Will they become Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, because they'll want to be religiously extremely passionate but give up on the Zionist messiness piece? A lot remains to be seen. I will say this. We do not live in a time that is blessed with lots and lots of morally courageous rabbis who are willing to take it on the chin for what they see as morally urgent. What the religious Zionist community in Israel needs desperately now is young rabbis willing to be dramatically outspoken about lo zuhaderech, to, to distort a line from achad am. This is not the way. This is not the way for Zionism. This is not the way forward for Judaism. This is not who we want and need to be. And theologically, to make the case, this is not who God wants us to be. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Rabbi Shai Held is the co-founder and dean of Mahon Hadar, an egalitarian education institution in New York. Our producer today has been Marit Har, and our executive producer is Julie Subrin. I'm Leah Leibowitz. Thank you so much for listening.